Good afternoon. It's Friday the 26th of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me uh, by video link today, we have Ben Rubin, Debbie Evans and Dr. Piers Robinson. So uh, welcome to the programme, everyone. We're going to get kicked off, of course, straight away with the ICJ ruling on Israel and genocide, Palestine. Uh, so what have they said? They uh, noted that they were deeply concerned by the continuing loss of life in, in, in Gaza. Uh, they said that the uh, present case is limited, that South Africa and Israel uh, are both parties to the genocide convention. So they're expecting uh, Israel to comply with the rulings. Uh, and they said that they absolutely have jurisdiction uh, to make orders. Now, the orders that they made, most of the rulings uh, were a 15 to 2 majority, uh, but it's noticeable that uh, they used language like take all measures, to, that Israel needs to take all measures to prevent, uh, and so on. Uh, they're not calling or they haven't called for an outright ceasefire uh, at this point. Um, she absolutely said that the court has jurisdiction to consider the case. Uh, and they said that, uh, that, that the rulings today uh, don't, are not prejudicial to any future uh, genocide decision. Um, uh, Piers, let me welcome you to the pro programme at this point. I, I appreciate that uh, you haven't had it, I and mean, none of us has had a chance to, to look at this in any detail yet. But, I mean, what are your initial thoughts? Well, uh, initially, uh, at least... This issue is not has not been kicked into touch at this point um, to take uh, these potential proceedings out, out of the out of the game. So in that sense, there's a positive there. Whether the comments um, firm enough, and as you pointed out, in terms of calling for an immediate ceasefire, I mean, some commentators seem to be highlight, highlighting that and how much of an issue that is. I think that's probably not as important as, as the bigger point here is that this is going ahead, um, that this is going to clearly go into a long phase, legal phase. And, you know, Israel has now got itself into, into a corner where it can be, you know, very likely to be, end up being found guilty of carrying out genocide. I mean, we have to wait and see what happens in the long run on that. But that that is definitely still in play. Um, and I think in terms of the broader situation um you know israel's position because of the policies it's pursued is increasingly has increased its isolation internationally um places it in an increasingly fragile position if there's further military escalation in the middle east which also seems to be on the cards um so i think um yeah that's as, about as much as i could read into this as, as this has just happened um but the problem is not going away. This is not a problem that's going to be buried. And I think this is, as we've said before, this is going to end up being a very bad um, story for the Israeli government um, in the medium term, at least. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Pierce. Now, obviously, this is a breaking story, so we don't have any more on it at this time. We will keep you posted uh, in due course. Uh, let's uh, come back to the UK, Debbie, uh, and welcome you to the programme. Uh, and, well, the dark subject of deaths here. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. And after the recent Andrew Bridgen excess death debate, together, uh, the organisation hosted an excellent um, Zoom meeting. And that's what I'd like to focus in on today. So end of life care, firstly, a good death, dying of thirst, dying for a drink, we all know about, or we've all heard about, midazolam, 
But for those of you that haven't heard about midazolam, midazolam is called an essential palliative care drug, although that is questionable. There are new guidelines out now for the use of midazolam. It's a commonly used benzodiazepine in palliative care, one of the four essential drugs for the promotion and quality care in dying. So I watched the debate um, intensely and I've listened to Father Professor Patrick Pulicino. Um, he was a consultant neurologist in the NHS and he called out the Liverpool Care Pathway. He's a remarkable man. Um, you cannot diagnose dying. And Dr. Uh, Professor Pulicino has been very vocal in not just um, end-of-life care, but also in what's been happening during COVID. And I'd like you to just listen to a little bit of what he said. Third point is end-of-life care is rapidly lethal because it combines sedation and dehydration. Those two are very, you know, they, they, they sort of, they, they help, they push each other. So sedation causes somebody not to drink and dehydration causes them to become confused and lethargic. So it's, it's, it's a vicious circle. Neither of those two should be allowed in medically sick patients, particularly the elderly. Elderly should never be sedated. And, you know, people learn that at medical school because it's, it can be very, it can be lethal. And obviously nobody should be dehydrated. And then finally, one point is about midazolam. And this has become, to me, it's become clearer, particularly after COVID. And I think most of us know that the peak of COVID, COVID deaths in, out-of-hospital uh, patients was concurrent with the peak of midazolam use. Midazolam is a benzodiazepine. It's the most powerful one, but it has a very short half-life, so it has to be given by continuous infusion. As a result, it's particularly used for conscious sedation, what is called conscious sedation, removing teeth, that sort of thing, where you need a very short period of Sedation, which turns back, which once you move it, returns to normal. Um, it is, if you look at the license or the label for its use, end-of-life pathways is a not, not a licensed or label use. It's an off-label use. Uh, so it, it um, and the reason is because there's no, there's no medical evidence supporting, there can be no medical evidence supporting what is effectively a lethal side effect of this drug. And if you look at the British National Formulary, formulary on, on midazolam, you'll find that all, um, all benzodiazepines have to be given very carefully in the elderly. And secondly, there is a contraindication in the BNF to giving an opiate with midazolam. And those are actually both prescribed together. So you're effectively prescribing a lethal combination, which is, which should be illegal. And secondly, you're giving it to a vulnerable, a vulnerable uh, group of patients, the elderly, the sick elderly. So again, not surprising that people die quickly from this. 
so many deaths can be avoided. Dehydration is the start of a very dangerous death path. And Professor Pulicino has set up a website specifically for members of the public, dehydrationlifeline.org, help for relatives. Now, this is written in very easy English, very easy to understand. Please go and look at this website. It's incredibly important and this could save and will save lives. So part of what he says is that patients are started on the pathway, their diagnosis imminently dying. This is not scientifically possible. He says, if you see um, somebody that's being discontinued fluids, this is going to lead to dehydration, which will lead to confusion, which will then probably lead to sedation. Medazolam is a, a short-acting benzodiazepine. That's what it's designed for. And if you see a syringe driver by the side of a patient, ask what's in it. He then goes on to give some really, really vital advice. The signs of dehydration, very simple. Please read these. They will save lives. If someone's thirsty and can't reach their drink, maybe they're immobile, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're um, a young person who's maybe got a fracture. If their tongue is dry, their mouth is dry, their lips are cracked, or their speech is poor, that could also be a sign. If they have a urine bag and their urine will be dark if they're dehydrated, a dark amber colour. Please check the drip if they have a drip. If it's dripping slowly, then it could be that they're dehydrating. Drowsiness or confusion can be associated and is associated with um, dehydration. Blood tests can determine dehydration, but a really easy test is to pinch the back of the hand, the skin on the back of the hand, just pinch it up. And if it falls back and springs back quickly, it's you're hydrated. If it stays in a little peak, that's a sign of dehydration. Dehydration causes death. Please make sure your loved ones aren't thirsty. Uh, Debbie, in my recent experience of visiting hospital, um, one of the things that I noticed straight away was that uh, there's very little presence of nurses on the wards at any particular time. And in fact, the, the machines, the pumps that are giving the drips uh, are often uh, alarming because the, uh, the, maybe the, the pipe got blocked or something and the, it stopped. Or, or in fact, they were, alarms were going off because the batteries were, were run out and they weren't plugged into the mains. Uh, and yet th this would happen for ages and nobody would come to deal with it. So, uh, as you say, if someone is unable to reach, then obviously they're going to end up dehydrated. What can people do to put a bit of pressure on to cause nurses to basically do their jobs? Challenge ask questions and make sure that that person's had a drink. In my day, we had fluid balance charts. So relatives could see at the chart at the bottom of the bed, the fluids in and the fluids out. Nowadays, you have to ask. And if your loved one is immobile or is slightly confused, then it's really up to the relatives to check in with the staff all the time. And when you go to visit, please make sure, offer them a drink because they might not have had one for quite a long time, as you rightly said, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, ben, uh, let's come to you then. And uh, everybody's favourite politician, Tony Blair. Isn't he just? Yes. Uh, so we, we've talked a lot over the past few weeks about the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and what they've been up to in the UK and what they have planned for the UK. Uh, but I think it's useful to look at what they're doing internationally because they're active pretty much everywhere. Um, and I'm going to start by looking at the Asia-Pacific region, uh, Indonesia, 
uh, and this all comes from an update from their Asia Pacific leader uh, that I came across a couple of days ago. Uh, so in Indonesia, they've been working on the Nusantra New Capital Authority project. So they're actually building a new city to replace Jakarta as the capital city of Indonesia. This is all about unlocking the power of technology. So it's going to be a smart city with all the kind of low carbon uh, uh, surveillance technology uh, that we've come to expect from these kinds of initiatives. There's a $35 billion budget, a real gravy train for contractors. I'm sure Blair is going to be wetting his beak there um, in, in an obscene fashion, as he normally is. Um, and interestingly, government is going to be the first section to be built. Sounds a little bit like Canberra in Australia, a new capital, um, which is built around the needs of, of politicians. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Uh, in India, uh, they've been setting a visionary strategy for future-proofing economic success for the state of Odisha. They've been defining a growth trajectory, setting GDP targets, and increasing focus on innovative sectors. So again, this is all about perpetuating this new economic, this new technological paradigm that they want everyone to buy into around climate, food, energy, and elsewhere. Uh, in Vietnam, they have been excited to formalize their partnership with the Communist Government's Ministry of Planning and Investment. So uh, this is all about attracting higher quality foreign direct investment, which uh, is basically asset stripping. That's a really important point to land on there, actually. We hear a lot about um, uh, foreign direct investment, foreign investment. Sunak talks about it in the context of the UK. It's basically asset stripping. That's flogging off our national assets to international investors. Um, in the Philippines, uh, they were very excited to work with the government to help them prepare for COP28. And they actually gave them a platform, a, a Blair Institute run panel at COP is about applying tech in times of crisis, yeah, the manufactured crisis that Tony Blair's had quite a serious hand in developing. The Philippines, as uh, you're probably aware, is, is also run by a fairly dictatorial figure. And I think this is why Tony likes going around to these countries. You can just go talk to the top guy and get things done. And they've got big growth ambitions for the region in 2024. Um, they're also really, really active in Africa. We've talked a lot about Africa and the former Commonwealth nations, the former uh, colonies, not just the British colonies, but the French, the Portuguese, other people that were down there being uh, uh, essentially a proving ground, a testing ground for a lot of the new initiatives that they're rolling out. Um, one of these things has manifested through a partnership uh, with C40 Cities, which I think is particularly interesting. We've talked a lot about C40 uh, it's the uh, group of 100 mayors from around the world that are united in action to confront the climate crisis. And it's co-chaired by Sadiq Khan, London mayor, and Yvonne Aki Sawyer, who's the mayor of Freetown in Sierra Leone. And uh, I, I came across this post a few days ago, which talks about um, uh, uh, Mrs. Aki Sawyer or Miss Aki Sawyer and the uh, Freetown, the tree town initiative that was funded by the Bloomberg Philanthropies Global Mayors Challenge. It was won a couple of years ago. They planted nearly a million trees, actually. It's quite a commendable initiative. But what I don't understand really with any of this stuff is why it requires international billionaires and really, frankly, war criminals like Tony Blair to come along and enable it. Can they not just do this stuff off their own back, like with, with local investment? It seems that that would make a lot more sense. Now, the person who shared this post, she's particularly excited. 
uh, some really interesting language here, right? So seeing how Freetown's natural capital investment strategy is rolled out and how we build and finance equitable, sustainable pathways to locally led climate adaptation in Freetown. Hashtag climate change solutions, hashtag climate finance, hashtag climate change action. The language around this stuff is so turgid and bureaucratic, but unfortunately, this is how these people speak. Um, now, uh, what else have we got in Africa? So, as I said, they've been very active. Um, they're, they're on the ground in a number of different places, Ghana, Malawi, Senegal. They've been doing lots of work around the health system, uh, introducing vaccine passports, digital ID systems. There's a whole page on the Tony Blair Institute website uh, with some very interesting, well-produced videos about what they've been up to. And as I say, I see this essentially as a, as a, as a laboratory for what they're lo looking to roll out across the health system in the UK and, and other developed nations. And they've also uh, worked on uh, an exciting project to indoctrinate, uh, sorry, educate school children in Rwanda. And Tony's going to tell you a little about a bit, of, a bit about that now. Everyone knows today that if you can't get on the internet, you can't get opportunity, you can't get advancement, you can't get progress. So this is going to enable us to do something absolutely revolutionary for the developing parts of the world. This is the first step. There's many more along the way, but it's an amazing innovation that has brought the internet right into the classroom here in the middle of Rwanda. So four things from that video. Uh, first thing, is Tony making funny hand signs again? Uh, is this the 666 sign? It's not a natural hand sign to make, and he delivers it in quite an awkward way. Have a look back at the video and see what you think of it. Uh, the second thing uh, is this organization, the Tomorrow Partnership, that flashed up at the end there. Now, it's presented as a separate entity to the Blair Institute, right? So uh, it has its own website, thetomorrowpartnership.com. But it appears to be a strategic partnership between Tony Blair Institute and Oracle, the U.S. technology company. Uh, and it says here, you can see that they're about helping governments to digitize traditionally paper based systems. Yeah, and they do that, especially in healthcare. Uh, Oracle was founded and is still run by Larry Ellison, who's currently the world's fourth richest man. And he actually flies under the radar a little bit in terms of his profile compared to the likes of Bill Gates or Elon Musk, right? He's, he's right up there in terms of his wealth and his influence, but he's a little bit lesser known. Uh, but he's very active, as I say, in the health system um, in Africa, clearly working with the Blair Institute, but also here in the UK, because just last year, he invested uh, 22 billion. In fact, no, he didn't invest 22 billion. He actually bought Cerner for 22 billion, which is used to run huge chunks of secondary care. Basically, the hospitals in the NHS run largely using Cerner technology. Larry Ellison bought it. Um, Blair's been working very closely with him. He helped him set up the Ellison Institute at Oxford uh, University. Um, uh, as, as thanks for this, Ellison gave Blair the thick end of, of 100 million pounds for, for his own institute. Uh, these two are, are thick of thieves, got to keep an eye on them. Um, the third thing about the video, that entire system that we just looked at, that school system with all the kids sitting around uh, on, on their laptops in the classroom, that whole thing is dependent on that little satellite dish thing on the top of the roof at the school, which you can see at the start of the video. Now that, it wasn't actually referenced in the film. It was in the announcement uh, that, that the film came from. It, it was referenced in the post. That is Starlink, 
Now, that's the high-speed internet system available almost anywhere on Earth that is uh, founded and run by, by Elon Musk. And this appears to be some kind of formal relationship between Musk and the Tony Blair Institute. Right? So I think the important thing to land on here, beyond the work that Blair's doing across Asia and Africa, is that global governance, as uh, embodied by Tony Blair, runs on the rails that are laid down by global billionaires. They have a very mutually dependent symbiotic relationship with each other. Davos shows us that. We'll talk about that later. And this is how that manifests out there in the field. And then the fourth and final thing, they're after your kids. Yeah, You don't want Tony Blair in your classroom. Okay, thank you, Ben, for that. Now let's uh, uh, move back in time a little bit and uh, to 2018 and Syria, and uh, there was an alleged chemical weapons attack took place in Douma. The Foreign Office at the time released a statement, uh, and this is what they had to say. These are very concerning reports of chemical weapons attack with significant number of casualties. An urgent investigation is needed. We call on the Assad regime and its backers, Russia and Iran, to stop the violence against innocent civilians. Uh, the Foreign Secretary and Acting Secretary of State agreed that based on current media reports from those on the ground, the attack bore hallmarks of previous chemical weapons attacks by the Assad regime and so on. Uh, now, in 2021, then, um, a statement of concern was published uh, on the OPCD, OPCW's uh, investigation of the Duma event. So this is the, the Office for Pro Pro Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Uh, and uh, the statement of concern read, we wish to express our deep concern over the protracted controversy and political fallout surrounding the OPCW and its investigation of the alleged chemical weapons attack in Douma, Syria in April 2018. Uh, since its publication by the OPCW of its final report in March 2019, a series of worrying developments has raised serious and substantial concerns with respect to the conduct of that investigation. These developments include instances in which OPCW inspectors involved with the investigation have identified major procedural and scientific irregularities. The leaking of significant quantity of corroborating documents and damning statements provided to UN Security Council. Uh, it is all now well established that some senior inspectors involved with the investigation, one of whom played a central role, reject how the investigation derived its uh, conclusions and OPCW management now stands accused of accepting unsubstantiated or possibly manipulated findings with most the most serious geopolitical and security implications. Uh, and there was a call on the Director General of the OPCW to address the problems. And this was signed by a host of people, including Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, Professor Richard Falk, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Catherine Gunn, uh, and so on. You can see the list on screen at the moment. Now, I'm glad to welcome uh, Piers Robinson to the programme. We've heard from him already. Uh, at the beginning of the program. But Piers, uh, you have been working with the uh, whistleblowers from the OPCW for quite a number of years now, uh, and uh, set up a group called Berlin 21, or at least is involved with a group called Berlin 21, uh, that uh, is trying to sort of continue to keep the pressure on this issue with the OPCW. Yeah, I mean, just to credit you, I've been working with Berlin Group 21 and Jose Pistani, who is the first director general of the OPCW, Professor Richard Falk, Hans von Sponnik, um, former assistant uh, UN Secretary General, um, essentially not working with whistleblowers, essentially representing the issues which have been raised by the body of evidence which emerged from the controversy over the Duma investigation. And, 
you know, this was an alleged chemical weapons attack. Uh, 43 civilians were found dead in an apartment building um, in Douma in Syria in 2018. It was followed up by airstrikes by the British, French and American governments. And essentially at that point, it was presented as part of what had been, uh, in a sense, a well-established mainstream media narrative on Syria, that the Syrian government was systematically carrying out chemical weapons attacks against its population. Now, there had already been a lot of controversy over these alleged attacks and people, for example, the Ghouta 2013 attack, where a large number of civilians were killed, where many people argued, and Seymour Hersh as well, the American investigative journalist, that this was actually carried out by opposition groups and not the Syrian government. Now, what has happened over the course of the war on Syria is that there have been repeated occurrences of alleged or allegations of attacks and events occurring, and the OPCW fact-finding missions were set up to investigate these and were putting out reports over, over a number of course of a number of years. And then with Duma 2018, I think that the, the bottom line, and to keep it simple, is that the manipulation and distortion of these investigations, which have been going on for many years, essentially to try and point the finger of blame at the Syrian government, uh, became so obvious and so extreme in the case of Duma 2013 that people involved in the investigation started to, as it were, blow the whistle on it. And that has really been sort of what I've been involved in, with certainly with BG21 for, for the last few years, is really putting those, erasing those issues and putting those issues through to the OPCW, to the state's parties, British, American, French governments, and so on, and saying, look, here you have um, very credible scientists involved in an investigation calling out fraud, okay? This fits into a broader narrative that you have promoted for many years that the Syrian government is, is to blame for the chemical weapons attacks. And here you have inspectors saying that this... Investigations have been distorted in order to you know, point in that direction and not actually get at the truth. And so, what what you have here in, in the broadest sense, if you think of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and the well-established deceptions in that case that we uh, know a lot about now, you have the same kind of playbook operating in Syria, where Western governments co-opting and corrupting OPCW investigations, working with opposition groups on the grounds, have been able to fabricate, fabricate and build this narrative of chemical weapons attacks. Some of these events involving you know, real deaths of civilians and real use of chemical weapons and so on, but not in reality or factually attributable to the Syrian government. So this is a very big issue, and this is a very big deception which the Duma controversy points to. And you know, as as you can see in the statement of concerns which have been issued, you know, the, the body of evidence demonstrating this is very very strong, as well as you know insiders, OPCW inspectors blowing the whistle on this as well. And this issue, as I say, has been continually put. The response throughout has been two strategies uh, carried out by the British, French and American governments in tandem with senior OPCW management. And that has been to smear the people raising questions as conspiracy theorists or disinformation activists. It's one strategy. The other strategy is simply not to respond, to refuse to respond to the very clear questions which have emerged from the issues raised by the scientists. 
One tiny little example, if you'll forgive me the detail on this, is that there was a toxicology report conducted by NATO weapon, chemical weapons experts, which concluded civilians in Duma were not killed by chlorine gas. Okay, and this was the allegation that they were killed by chlorine gas. And that was actively suppressed by the OPCW across, across the course of a number of reports. And so that's a little example of, of quite how serious the manipulations have been. And this year, the Berlin Group 21, we issued a report and it went to all the state's parties, a 50,000 word report documenting all of the leaked information, all of the testimony from OPCW persons about what had been going on. And this was put to the OPCW um, by the uh, by the Brazilian government in the UN Security Council, and they requested clear answers to the questions raised. Um, the questions have been raised again at the OPCW Conference of States Parties in November of 2023, and yet again in December at the UN Security Council. Brazil has raised questions about irregularities and so on, and the response is zero. Um, they are just trying to sit this one out. Um, and so, you know, this is part of the work which particularly Hans and I as part of Berlin Group 21. We are just continuing to pass on the report, put the report under the noses of diplomats, think tanks, and so on. Um, and hoping that at some point there will be a reasoned, rational response from the OPCW senior management and the British and French and American governments um, and, and a willingness to um, own up to what has been going on. I suspect because of the geopolitical realities that they have, um, they're wedded, on, they're, they're stuck on this particular train they're on and it's very difficult for, the, for them to get off it. Um, this is, I think, part of a broader geostrategic narrative to discredit, delete, delegitimate, delegitimate the Brazilian, uh, the Syrian government in order to justify a regime change policy as part yeah, but, of the 9-11 regime sorry, change war. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. Pierce, because it's not just Syria, is it? Because as, as the Statement of Concern sa says, this is about Russia and Iran as well. And of course, here we are, years following the Syri the, effectively the end of the Syrian conflict, and we're still banging war drums against, Syria, uh, against uh, Russia and Iran. Yeah, this, I mean, all of this, I mean, Syria as, as a case and as, as, as a case of sort of strategic deception fits into the context of the war, the regime change wars that we have seen since 9-11. That itself was a self-inflicted wound to get these conflicts rolling, to get them started. And as we know from documents which have come out, Chilgot Inquiry, for example, but other people such as uh, General Wesley Clark, um, it was very clear that there was... Uh, detailed plans for overthrowing a whole series of countries. And, and Iran was always the end point in that regime change war policy, which was um, initiated at the point of 9-11, having been planned beforehand. Um, and that's exactly where we are. All of these years on, the deceptions rolling on, and it is about essentially these, some would describe now, desperate drives from the Western military industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, to continue this policy and to continue the, the belligerent engagement in the international system as a part of shoring up our power and influence, or the West's power and influence. Yeah. So it's very much part of this bigger geopolitical picture. And you know, as with the case of 9-11 itself, um, you know, the, the sooner Western publics fully wake up 
to the level of deception and manipulation, then the sooner there's some possibility of significant pushback against Western governments. And, you know, we are getting closer and closer to that point where if, if we have major escalation in the Middle East, if they go for Iran, if the neocons get their way and we have war with Iran, it's very unlikely that China and Russia will stand one side in that. And, you know, difficult with the younger generation today who've been sort of uh, anesthetized to, to the level of conflict in the international system. This is an extremely dangerous point um, in time. Um, and us going a, a regional war in the Middle East, um, expanding, and then Russia and China becoming involved, um, that can head to very, very dangerous and dark places. Yeah. Not definitely what's going to happen, but we would be, um, it would be naive not to recognize the dangers implicit in that. So, yeah. so yes, the OPCW issue very much fits into this broader um, network. And, and for sure, I mean, of I obviously have been involved in researching and writing about this and also with, with Hanson BG21. Um, it, it is a case where the evidence is there. It's very, very solid. There's very little uh, room for alternative interpretations. It, a bit like where we are now with Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. We've got the evidence that, and on that of what was going on, etc. Same goes for 9-11. And the same goes for what's been um, essentially uh, created as part of trying to overthrow the Syrian government, a, a major strategic deception, um, yeah. and so on. So, you know, for people who like the details, the evidence is there, and and the people Hans and I in particular, but also I think OPCW persons who have raised issues, whistleblowers, and so on. Um, no one's going to let this one go. Okay, Pierce, uh, I'm going to say thank you very much for that. I, I just wonder uh, if if you've got just two words on this. Uh, you, if we look at the, 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 this example of the OPCW, but then we've also got the World Health Organization and other UN institutions that are effectively being co-opted to pursue a Western agenda. Is, do you think the, the UN can come back from this? Yeah, I mean, the, these parallels are important. And, and this, if, if, if people read the, the statement which BG21 has just put out um, uh, on its website, um, you know, and Hans and actually Professor Richard Falk have got a book coming out on the United Nations. And of course, both have been heavily involved and, and Hans was an employee of the United Nations. You know, what, what we have here is another piece of evidence of the corruption and co-optation of our international organizations. We've seen it with the COVID response. Um, we see it every day in, in the geopolitical context. Um, yeah, can it come back from this? I, I, I'm really not sure. I, I think the institutions are very corrupt. I'd say that there is a possibility that with sufficient pressures and and so on, and maybe what we're seeing in Israel and Gaza at the moment, that will create um, some kind of drive for accountability, which will re restore some credibility, or at least have be an example of this is how the United Nations is supposed to work, um, that that might be able to um, give the UN an opportunity to come back. Um, but, you know, unless it deals with issues such as the OPCW and Syria, I mean, you know, persistent corruption and manipulation of investigations to keep a war going, unless that's dealt with, I, I, I think it's, you know, people who argue that these institutions are fundamentally broken and not working, I think that argument is going to remain persuasive. So I think, um, so in short, there is a way back, possibly, 
Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's going to have to do a lot of work to restore its own credibility. The way the United Nations itself is getting caught up in, in the ridiculous disinformation narrative, for example, um, as well as, yeah, as we said, the, the COVID issue and the pandemic preparedness agenda, this all points towards um, co-optation of these organizations by yeah. powerful actors, particularly the West, but also, you know, and it's an open question to an extent, other major powers in the international system. You know, one of the problems we have is that I think that all, all governments are tempted by these um, technologies of control and manipulation, whether it's censorship or pandemic preparedness and so on. And so it's tempting for all powerful actors to sort of run with those agendas. And in a sense, what you need and what the UN should be is, is it should be there for the peoples of the world. That's what it's supposed to be for. Yeah. And, you know, that's going to be a long road and a very hard road, I think, sort of rebuilding the UN so that it is properly functioning as a voice in order to represent the people of the world rather than powerful elite groups. Yes. Um, but, you know, never give up hope, I, I would say. Okay. Thank you very much, Pierce. Thank you very much for joining us today. That is uh, really useful. Now, uh, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you would be welcome as a member and your membership uh, very much needed. Uh, please also consider the shop. Uh, we have stuff for you there as well. Uh, but please do uh, share anything on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumn.extracts.co.uk. Uh, and Debbie's uh, blog is now up on ukcolumn.org if you would like to uh, have a look at that, uh, focusing on the MHRA, as you can see on screen there. Uh, we've got uh, the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates being discussed uh, with Mark uh, Anderson and uh, Matt Travella. Uh, that's on the website. Uh, and although it's not there yet, it will be immediately after the news. Uh, we have uh, the first episode of the new series, The Health Revolution with Clive DeCarlo, went out on Thursday. Uh, yesterday. That will be up later on. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, uh, an event happening in Cornwall. There is Cornwall rising up. Uh, please do join me. I'll, I'll be definitely going um, on 4th of February between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock, St. Austell Rugby Club. Please book a place, stannery2.0 at proton.me. Okay, thank you, Debbie. And uh, well, let's come back to you and excess mortality a bit more on this. Okay, so yes, we've talked about end-of-life care. So end-of-life care is essentially euthanasia, and that's, this is where a doctor administers a substance to accelerate death. Assisted suicide is where a person ingests a substance to facilitate their own death. Professor Kevin Yule was also present on this incredible Zoom by, held by Together. The link will be in the uh, show notes. Professor Kevin Yule is a historian. He's also researched assisted suicide. He's the CEO of Humanists Against Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. Let's hear what he had to say. I'm here to talk really more about the context in which these kind of things are happening and to draw your attention really to proposed legislation that should probably come in this year, which is to amend the Suicide Act in 1961 to allow assisted suicide and euthanasia. So I think this will target people who feel a burden. This is the evidence that we have from other countries where it is legal. It will target people who feel a burden. Feeling a burden is a more important reason than pain in every survey that asks why in areas where it is legal, 
it takes place. So where it's been in place some time, proposals have inevitably emerged to allow euthanasia for all those of over the age of 75 who are, quote, tired of life. And that is the Netherlands. Uh, it originally in 2011, I believe it had 115,000 signatures behind it, that proposal. It has come up in the Netherlands twice since then. It has not been successful, uh, but I think it's a danger. Also in Canada, which legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide in 2016, already uh, there was a Quebec doctor who was suggest who became notorious for suggesting that in fact euthanasia would be very useful to extend to minors to children of all ages uh, but he also in the same discussion uh, said that people who are elderly should have access to euthanasia so um i think that's part of the whole thing i'm a historian uh, part of the campaign for euthanasia historically it first emerged in 1870 no sooner no uh, no later that's you know we can be fairly exact unlike most historical points it's exactly when it came up and part of the campaign has always been compassion there's no question that compassion comes into it but it has always been coupled with social utility and this is the problem serious proposal for euthanasia were part of the eugenics movement uh, they aimed to streamline society by getting rid of those whose lives are inconvenient were inconvenient to themselves but also to others to society more broadly so those motivations continue today i don't have to tell you about i, I hate talking about the 1930s because i i don't like to uh, tag my opponents with with the idea that they're a bunch of nazis and of course they're not they're well-meaning people but um the, of course people are very familiar i think with the mass euthanasia that happened under the third reich that began with uh, the disabled then with the mentally disabled and then jews um so it's it sort of extended in that way i'm happy to answer questions or give lectures about that because that's what i used to do So the assisted dying bill, as Professor Yule says, is set to come in uh, possibly uh, this year. So uh, please do go and look at that video. Jumping on to another topic, of course, which involves death again, um, is vaccine injuries. And I'd like to just take you now to a, a topic that was um, held in New Hampshire, New Hampshire Senate. Uh, this was relative to vaccine and pharmaceutical products being distributed by the state. Um, and Senate Bill 319 prohibits the state of New Hampshire and its political subdivisions from purchasing or promoting or distributing any vaccine or pharma product that has not been tested with voluntary human trials. I was absolutely staggered, um, and I'm going to introduce you to Dr. John Bowdown, who you may not have heard of. He's a systems engineer, and he gave evidence at New Hampshire hearing. He wants to know why the mRNA skipped all trials. He has the most amazing amount of evidence. He has a million um, unredacted death certificates, which he has analysed comparably with the VAERS data. Let's hear what he says. One million unredacted death certificates 
about 500,000 from Massachusetts, 420,000 from Minnesota, and other, uh, the balance comes from Vermont. I'll just talk about Massachusetts for a minute. As far as safe and effective goes, I traverse the hierarchy of data and evidence from the individual case, that's a single death certificate, all the way up through all-cause, which is the highest level of hierarchy. So all-cause deaths, yes, they were up uh, quite a bit in Massachusetts in 2020, <clears throat> but they were also up in 21 and 22. All of a sudden, the causes of death that were causing the excess death shifted from a, a respiratory seasonal virus. So you have pneumonia deaths, ARDS, COPD. They were up in 2020. Well, what happened on a year boundary when the vaccines were introduced? Everything shifted to blood and circulatory. Blood and circulatory deaths all of a sudden started going up. They didn't go up when COVID was around in 2020. They all of a sudden started going up in 2021. Acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, thrombocytopenia, cardiac arrhythmia, cardiac arrest, pulmonary embolism, and I can tell you about the individual cases. Cassidy Baraka from Groton, Massachusetts, was injected in January 13. There's a report written about her. She reacted in five minutes, vomited for eight to 10 hours. Cassidy died on January 18, four and a half days later. You know what it says on her death certificate from Massachusetts? Complications of coronavirus 19 viral infection with no mention of the vaccine. Those are multiple federal felonies that the medical examiner Stephen Schwartz committed on her death certificate. A couple days ago, it was referred to the Attorney General of Massachusetts for criminal investigation. That's just one. That's just one. The death industry is alive and well. Yes, indeed. Debbie, we're going to do something about that. Okay, let's... Uh come on to the issue of education and homeschooling, uh, because homeschooling is on the rise. According to the British government and the Department of Education, they're very excited about that because, of course, they lose those people uh, who get perhaps alternative nar narratives. So they're extremely concerned uh, that homeschooling is not only on the rise, but it's going to become a permanent feature of British life. Uh, so let's have a look and see what they had to say about it. Local authorities have a duty under Section 436A of the Education Act 1996 to make arrangements to establish the identities of children in their area who are not registered pupils at a school and are not receiving suitable education. Um, so this, these are the numbers that they're talking about. In uh, autumn 2022, there were, they say, uh, 80,900 uh, pupils uh, who are not uh, in normal schools uh, and are being homeschooled. Uh, by spring 2023, that had gone up to 86,200. Uh, and by the summer of 2023, that was up to 97,700. 97, so uh, quite a stark rise, and it seems to be going in that general direction. Uh, this is the General Secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers saying, we need to see more boots on the ground with visits to families to get to the bottom of issues with children's attendance. But crucially, local authority roles like education welfare officers have been decimated. So, of course, being a head teacher or representing head teachers is extremely concerned that the education industry is being put out of business or can potentially be put out of business by this. Well, what's the political response? Well, here is uh, 
Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, and she was speaking in December uh, saying that the government will legislate, legislate for a homeschool register uh, at a future suitable opportunity, although it wasn't in the so-called King's speech. Uh, what about the Labour Party, since they're likely to become the next government? This is their position. They are going to introduce, if they become the next government, a homeschool register. Uh, so Uniparty again. But more than that, they're going to introduce AI to identify school absence trends by joining up existing records for children and improving coordination between education, social care and the wider services that support families. Um, well, those are the political party positions. What about MPs in general? Uh, well, this is Robin Walker, chair of the Education Select Committee, saying that the committee, the Education Select Committee, stresses the urgent need for government to bring in the long-awaited register of children not in school and statutory guidance to help schools boost attendance, including guidance on councils' inconsistent use of fines. So clearly, we're heading towards an attack on homeschooling from government, uh, but not just from government, also from the media. Uh, and we've mentioned this before because uh, Katie Jo Murphan's Hope Project in Sussex, Hope Sussex School Train's next generation of conspiracy theories, said the Times about a year ago. Uh, and this type of narrative uh, absolutely maintained in the mainstream press because, as I say, if they lose control of the narrative, there's trouble. The Humanist Society, of course, Humanist UK, very keen uh, to prevent homeschooling because they claim that homeschooling is mostly related to uh, to religion uh, and uh, they're concerned about unregistered schools, so-called illegal schools uh, like, like Hope Sussex and other places, but uh, they're particularly concerned of ones that are that are religious in nature. But don't worry, the private sector is ready to take advantage of this situation. Uh, so here is uh, FE Stories saying uh, famous investor, the homeschooling boom is just beginning. Uh, they want to get involved in making sure that homeschoolers can uh, spend their money in the right places. Uh, and of course, this is really just, uh, I believe, an effort to uh, make sure that the narrative finds its way into homeschooling as well uh, by private companies uh, providing uh, tools and, and uh, mechanisms for people to homeschool with ease uh, at home and so on. Uh, but let's uh, bring this on from Hannah Frankman, who's saying homeschooling your kids is not a luxury. It's a sacrifice, but it's a worth it. I, but it's worth it. I would just say to finish, uh, it's not a sacrifice. If you're able to do it, it's an act of resistance uh, because, of course, it is absolutely counter to the mainstream narrative in many ways. Um, so um, encouraging news, Ben, that uh, uh, people homeschooling, the numbers homeschooling are increasing. Uh, we've got to encourage that as much as possible, I think. I agree, yes. Uh, one less child in the grip of state indoctrination, the better, basically. Um, you know, it, and, and actually it runs completely counter to the, the trend that I'm going to talk about now, interestingly. Um, and these two things are obviously directly linked to each other. Uh, you will not have failed to notice that there is a loud and ongoing and concerted effort to introduce women into the workforce and to rapidly elevate them into positions of power and authority. But where is it coming from? How does it manifest? And what are the implications of all this? Uh, to kick things off, we're going to listen to uh, Common Purpose CEO Adirupa Sengupta. It is widely acknowledged that women have historically faced greater barriers when it comes to fully participating in economic life. Across the world, 
geographies and backgrounds, disparities between men and women persist in the form of pay gaps, uneven opportunities for advancement, and even disproportionate representation in decision-making. The challenges have been compounded further by the COVID pandemic. The value of gender diversity, particularly in the workplace, is something we must make greater efforts to solve. Women bring different perspectives and approaches to the world of work, which can result in a more inclusive workplace and offer much better results in organizations. Inclusive leaders and inclusive organizations outperform those that are not, yet women remain underrepresented in all levels of management. To achieve this, we need in our organizations and as a society to create spaces and opportunities for women across the world to help them to share their experiences with the next generation of female leaders to spark, to motivate and to mentor. When we can create opportunities to come together and learn from each other's experiences and perspectives, we not only help overcome the barriers we may place on ourselves as women, but also we can build our courage, our confidence and resilience. No mention of children at all. Uh, you know, which is historically the reason why women were not in the workforce. They were taking care of, of the children. That was part of the nuclear family unit. It was the kind of core uh, uh, base unit of our civilization for the whole of human history up until very recently. And people like Adarupa Sengupta at Common Purpose are very keen to push back on that. Apparently, women have been oppressed. Uh, we've got to give them more money. We've got to give them bigger jobs. We've got to involve them in all the important decisions. Apparently, inclusive leaders and organizations outperform those that are not inclusive, i.e. that don't proactively work to bring women into them. And unfortunately, we, we hear this all the time. I can fairly confidently tell you that there's very little real-world evidence to support that claim. Anyway, how does all this manifest in the world. So here's an organization from Davos last week, 100 Davos women, one of a bewildering ar array of different organizations, purely focused on female empowerment, getting women into top jobs, funneling lots more dosh and power towards them. You can see here that it's sponsored and promoted by a bunch of big global corporations. They always have a funky hashtag here. It's convening to catalyze change. But that doesn't actually mean change to the system itself. There's no mention here that Davos is the annual meeting of the global, the global slave trade. Obviously, none of that matters so long as the people running the global slave trade have got the correct genitalia. That's what these people appear to think. Uh, there's another example here, the Reykjavik Global Forum, again, appearing at Davos last week. You can see... A lot of posing, a lot of outfit changes, a lot of expensive sunglasses, a lot of spouting off about how they need to be given more money, bigger jobs and more power. The hashtag here, power together. Now, uh, the Reykjavik Global Forum is an interesting event. It's a women only networking event. It's held in Iceland's capital at the end of the year. There was one a couple of months ago. Um, and apparently the solution to all of these awful male only spaces is wonderful female only spaces, right? They're doing the same thing apparently, but in reverse. Uh, does that make any sense? No. Is it supposed to make sense? I don't think so. 
And have any of these women even considered that this might be a bit hypocritical? Almost certainly not. Um, and the assumption, again, just going back to this issue around home education and the way that the family unit ultimately has operated very successfully for, for, for forever, um, the assumption is that these, that these spaces in industry or politics or wherever else were male dominated purely because women wanted, uh, sorry, because men wanted to recruit power and money for themselves at the expense of, of women, right? That's, that's the, the, the tacit assumption that sits at the bottom of this worldview. And I think that it is fundamentally cynical, fundamentally uh, inaccurate, and actually um, incredibly dishonest uh, in, in the way that it's applied. Uh, now, I heard about this, the Reykjavik Global Forum, after seeing a post from this lady, this is Jane Geraghty, and at the time, she was the global CEO of a company called Landor, which is a big design agency. I actually know a bunch of people who work there. Hi, guys. Uh, now, she talks about 500 mighty female leaders from politics and business, right? So politics and business, the integration of those two things is fascism, but don't worry, they're ladies, so it's fine. Uh, now, again, they all agreed when they got together that they need to be paid more money, they need to be given bigger jobs. Uh, they also talk about gender-based violence, which is very important, but it doesn't have anything to do with those other things that they're talking about. I think it's really just a smokescreen to stop us from being able to criticise them, but I'm just going to have to wade through that one, unfortunately. Now, I want to draw your attention to the quote that, that we just saw on the right-hand side. This is really important. Yeah. So Geraghty here says that the creative industry has been very successful at using commercial creativity on behalf of brands, businesses, and our hope is that we take all that expertise and apply it to influence policy. And that's really important, right? For first reason it's really important is that Jane Geraghty has just been promoted from her position as CEO of Landor to the global chief client officer of WPP. Right? So she runs all client relationships internationally for the world's largest advertising group. Right, so she and others like her in similar positions are actively working to turn these organizations, these huge global communications networks, from commercially focused entities to activist and campaign groups that are designed to change hearts and minds around social and political issues. Right, so these are extraordinarily powerful propaganda machines, basically, largely run by women and largely aligned to the globalist agenda that we talk about so much. And we've talked about it a lot today. We talk about it pretty much every week. Right? It defines everything that we do here on the column, pretty much. Um, now, as well as this, uh, the, in that post that I just shared, uh, there were two. There was a bunch of organizations and individuals linked. I'm going to highlight two. First one is this one, which is the uh, Interparliamentary Union. right? And this is a global organization of parliaments working in 179 countries, and they empower MPs to promote peace, democracy, and the SDGs, right? So in the midst of 500 powerful women from business and politics in Reykjavik, you've got that organization promoting the SDGs, joining up global parliaments. That's a bit dodgy, I think. Uh, and then the second organization and individual I want to draw your attention to is this company called Verian and the CEO, Michelle Harrison, who looks really scary, actually. Um, sorry, Michelle, but you do. Uh, and Varian used to be called Kantar Public. Right? And Kantar is a huge market research company owned by WPP. They use it to, to 
um, uh, to, to research public opinion, to test messaging for campaigns. Like they work across all sectors and she runs the public sector component of that huge organization. And that business has just been acquired and spun out in a management buyout supported by this group, Trilantic Europe. And this is actually the old Lehman Brothers merchant banking business. And they've supported a management buyout of Varian from WPP. And um, what they talk about is powering decisions that shape the world. Yeah, and that includes, if you go to their website uh, and you can see this little video, click that video on the right-hand side, it includes creative execution of behavioral change. Yeah. Um, now, those are their words. My words are, this is basically a large-scale propaganda machine designed to push forward a global agenda backed by some very questionable financial institutions and all uh, aligned to an agenda being put forward by common purpose. And women fundamentally sit right at the centre of it. Uh, thank you, Ben. Now, Debbie, uh, just before we come on to your final segment here, uh, have you got any thoughts on that? Sorry, Mike, I didn't hear sorry. I say, just before we come on to your final segment, have you got any thoughts on Ben's Ben's uh, segment there? Yes, I have. I would really like an invitation with some of these women um, because I have a lot to say about it. Perhaps we can talk about it a bit on extra because it's fascinating. I have a completely different perspective. Who would have thought? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Now, Debbie, let's uh, finish today with the World Health Organization. Yes, and you know what? This is this is going to be uplifting, I hope, for everybody. So uh, James Roguski, who's done much work, so much work on uh, scrutinising the WHO and the international health regulations. His latest substack is entitled Big Trouble in Little Geneva. And after a one-hour briefing was presented to the WHO, it would seem that all is not going too well. So what, what are those reasons that he lists? in his substack, so a number of them. Um, I won't read them all out, just a couple there. He says that many facts were omitted, uh, including the January 2024 deadline. He says that the pandemic treaty uh, is being rewritten because member states are unhappy, but that wasn't really mentioned. However, was it mentioned? Well, you know what, I listened to it and uh, it's always very satisfying, isn't it, to see Tedros looking a bit concerned. Let's have a listen to what he said about the Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. World leaders at the UN General Assembly high-level meeting agreed a strong political declaration, including a commitment to include negotiations on the pandemic agreement and amendments to the international health regulations by May this year. But I must say I'm concerned that member states may not meet that commitment. Time is very short, and there are several outstanding issues that remain to be resolved. In my view, a failure to deliver the pandemic agreement and the IHR amendments will be a missed opportunity for which future generations may not forgive us. It will take courage, and it will take compromise from our side. You will not reach consensus if everyone remains entrenched in their positions. Everyone will have to give something or no one will get anything. I urge all member states to work with urgency 
and purpose to reach consensus on a strong agreement that will help to protect our children and grandchildren from future pandemics. So you, our wonderful audience and uh, listeners, are making a difference. This is really good to see Tedros concerned. So who is our rep in the UK, for example? I've just taken the UK as an example, but if you go to the WHO um, and you can see who your rep is for your country. So our rep is Miss L. Collins. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them there, but we'll just take the one at the top, Miss L. Collins. So who is she? Miss L. Collins is actually an LSE graduate um, in international relations, but she's risen to the top in super quick time. So let's go and have a look a bit more in detail at Miss Collins, because we can see that she was a G7 senior policy advisor for antivirals and therapeutics, where she manages two policy advisors. She's head of WHO, but only eight years. She was a legal intern with Disney, How the Young Rise. Um, and so she's made considerable progress in a very short time. So we need to put pressure on these people. And just to end this segment um, very briefly, really with a statue. Oh, sorry. Yes, please please the screen for Miss Collins and you can see her CV there. But just to end this segment with the statue outside the WHO, which was launched, uh, which was unveiled in 2013, but it's to launch smallpox eradication. So perhaps we should be calling the World Health Organization, the World Vaccine Organization. Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now, you just have to excuse me one second because we're, gonna, we're just going to um, jump forward here to um, a final slide. We're, we're going to end the programme there and I'm going to say thank you very much to Piers, to Debbie and to Ben for today. Now, we've got quite a lot for extra today, uh, including CBDC, uh, a bit more on uh, Davos and a bit more on global goals and so on. Uh, but uh, we also have some video of the continuing farmers' protests uh, I just wanted to put this up to end off with because uh, I thought it was an interesting thought. Uh, the world can live without politicians, but the world cannot live without farmers. Uh, that may well be the case. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, the question is, do we need uh, to continue with the types of politicians that we have at the moment? We'll end there. We've got lots to cover and extra in a few minutes time. Uh, do join us if you're a UK column member. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday and hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.